Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. You have the verses there printed in your bulletin or where we're going to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Remember, if you have no idea where 1 Thessalonians is, feel free to use the table of contents. Go to the middle of your Bible. You'll start going Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Keep going. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You'll find yourself in 1 Thessalonians. And again, a reminder of how the Bible works. The Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say somebody's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament, which is where we find ourselves this morning, says someone's coming again. And who is that someone? The promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you're opening up there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what we've been doing for the past few weeks and what we'll continue to do kind of up through the Advent period is we're just going to look at 1 and 2 Thessalonians just one verse at a time, chunk by chunk as we move through. So as soon as we finish 1 Thessalonians, we're going to go right into 2 Thessalonians and just keep on going. And so we find ourselves in chapter 4 this morning. And while you're opening there, I'll tell you a little story. Maybe you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan before, this World War II kind of movie, really gripping movie. It's been out for a long time. And in the closing scenes of that movie, you find Captain Miller, who is played by the actor Tom Hanks. He's li- he lays dying. He's shot on a bridge, and he tells the man he was sent to rescue, Private James Ryan, who is played by Matt Damon, He looks at him and he basically, Captain Miller looks at Private Ryan and he looks at him and his dying words were, earn this, earn this. Six men had died trying to rescue Private Ryan and Captain Miller was asking him to go live a life worthy of the sacrifice that was made on his behalf. That's what he was saying. Look at what it cost. Look at what it cost. Go go earn this. Go live this life in honor of that sacrifice. And at the very end of the movie, it's a really powerfully gripping scene. You see a young Private Ryan kind of morph into an elderly man, and you find out that he is visiting Captain Miller's grave at what we assume is Normandy American Cemetery in France, which it bears very similar resemblance to Arlington National Cemetery in Washington. If you've ever been there, you know that It is just seemingly endless straight rows of white crosses. Um, It's just, it's it's a gripping thing. If you've ever been to Arlington National Cemetery, you are standing in the middle of what it cost, the human cost of war. And at the end of the movie, Ryan, as an older man, stands in front of Miller's gravestone, and here's what he says. He says, my family is with me today. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day I think about what you said to me on that day at the bridge, and I tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I've earned all of what you have done for me. We think about this, and the reason that I bring this up is before we read this text this morning, the order of events is more important than you may realize in that scene. And I'll talk about that more in just a second. What we're about to do is we're about to read a passage that marks a shift in Paul's letter to this group of young Christians in 1 Thessalonians. There's a a shift that happens right here in in chapter 4. And Paul has spent three chapters reminding the Thessalonians of how much he loved them, specifically pointing out how he had seen God change them and reminding them that Christ has been glorified through their faithful lives in front of others. He's also been responding to 
these detractors who were saying that he was only in it for personal gain. He spends a little bit of time kind of deflecting that. But most of all, just reminding the Thessalonians, hey, I love you. I miss you. I hear about what God is doing through you, and I am encouraged. Keep going. And now in chapter 4, Paul begins to offer counsel to this church that he has said, I long to see you again face to face. So I'm sending this letter to encourage you. And we're about to read a passage that most Bibles separate with the section subheading, A Life life Pleasing to God. Maybe you have something similar depending on which translation you have. Mine has A Life Pleasing to God in the ESV. But the little section subheading that probably says something very similar. And Paul is about to exhort this group of Christians to pursue holiness. And theologically, this is called sanctification, a word that we'll see in verse 3. And the catechism asks the question in question 35, shorter catechism, what is sanctification? What is this thing that we're about to talk about? Here's how it defines it. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's a working definition of sanctification. And under that umbrella of sanctification, there's two ways that this plays out in the life of the Christian. There's mortification, which is dying to sin, and vivification, living unto righteousness, living unto Christ, living unto holiness. But this is where the order comes into play and why it is so important. Because I bet... Many of you in this room grew up hearing stuff like this, that God helps those who help themselves, or God can't use you unless you're somehow fully surrendered to Him and His will, or your pursuit of holiness shows God and others that you really are a Christian. And let me state at the outset that I do believe that we are called to obey the law of God. We're commanded to obey the law of God by God Himself. That's good enough. But I, and I am not an antinomian. I'm not against the law of God. I believe that we're called to obey the law of God. There's three uses of the law. Number one, the law reveals our sin. It shows us how crooked we are. God's holy law reveals our sin. The second thing that it does is it shows us our desperate need for a Savior. So we're driven to Christ by the law. We see how much we've messed up. We're driven to Christ. Now the third use of the law, God's law, is a guide for Christian living. How life is to work best. And again, our catechism asks the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? What's this Bible all about that you hold? The scriptures principally teach, number one, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Those two things. And so we think about that's what the the law does. But the reason why we obey the law, the motivation behind it is absolutely crucial to understand if we're to grasp the basic gospel structure of the Bible. The order of events is super important. Okay, let's go back to that bridge scene for a minute. Think about what has transpired. You have Captain Miller who makes the ultimate sacrifice to save Private Ryan. The sacrifice has already been accomplished. And what he then does is calls Ryan to respond to that sacrifice by living his life, honoring the sacrifice that was made in order to rescue him. Here's a great quote, long quote by James Grant. We're going to read the scripture after we do this, I promise. It's all baked into the time, don't worry. Here's what James Grant said. This is super important if we're going to understand this doctrine of sanctification. James Grant Jr. said, The indicative, the act of God, 
always precedes the imperative, the command of God. We've talked about that before. The indicative drives the imperative. A statement of fact always drives the command. He goes on and says, this is the basic gospel structure of the Bible. One of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is a failure to understand this basic pattern regarding biblical obedience. Since we do not understand what God has done, we are constantly struggling to obey. If we do not understand the indicative, the act of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for us to joyfully obey the imperatives, the commands of God. The gospel is so powerful that God has already transformed us. We have already been changed. We have been called, regenerated, forgiven, and adopted. The biblical ethic is that we are now called to live like that. In other words, we are called to become what we already are in Christ. It's good news. A statement of fact. You are already in Christ, saved, redeemed. Now, go, obey the law of God. Go obey. That, cru- that order is absolutely crucial, the indicative driving the imperative. So, with that in your mind, and if you're wanting to know where you get that quote, it's on the reflection questions, it's on the email that got sent out. If you want that long quote, it's there. I'll email it to you if you need it. It's a great quote, something to chew on. So with that in mind, with that order, keep that order in mind as we read this text this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives, this whole, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help this morning. Take these words, speak through this broken man, and Father, apply them to our hearts. Remind us of what is true and what is right. Help us to make much of Christ, O Lord. Holy Spirit, please come. Change our hearts. Convict us, O Lord. Help us to uh, pursue you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to worship you this morning. We pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, so we hear the call to holiness, right? Be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And we ask the question, okay, how does the gospel empower us to pursue holiness? How's that work? 
How does the gospel empower us to pursue holiness? We're going to see two ways, which is our two main points this morning. Number one, we're going to see the source of progress in the Christian life, and then we're going to see the purpose of progress in the Christian life. So what's the source of that progress? And then what's the purpose of that progress in the Christian life and sanctification? So another way to put that is the how and then the why. So let's look at the first point, the source of progress in the Christian life, which is kind of the how. Paul has already thanked God for how the gospel has come with great power and with full conviction of the Holy Spirit as the Thessalonians received it as the word of God. He's already talked about that earlier in his letter. And he thanks God for how the Thessalonians had borne up under persecution and ostracism after they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. He said there was this shift that happened when the gospel came to you and your whole lives were changed and you were immediately met with persecution and hardship, but you've borne up underneath it. And I am encouraged by how you have borne up. That's what Paul is saying. And he thanked God for the report that he received from Timothy. We looked at that last week. As he heard about the love that existed in this church and how their faith and witness had influenced the surrounding area, he thanked God that this group has been declared blameless because of Christ. And he said you can imagine Paul almost beaming with joy as he thinks about spending an eternity with these new brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, you are now part of my family forever and look at what Christ has done and it's been my joy to serve you and it makes my heart happy when I think about you who were once far off like we're going to be in heaven together you just feel the pastoral heart of Paul just beating and definitively Paul had talked about they had already been declared holy and sanctified because of Christ they'd been set free from the dominion of sin and consecrated set apart for God And you can imagine Paul hearing this good news and wanting to shout, keep going, keep going, keep going, as he thought about the growth that he had seen in this church as they followed Christ. That's exactly what he does in verse 1. He says, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, do so more and more. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep pursuing Christ. He is, the ESV says we ask and we urge. The Greek verbs are actually stronger. He says we actually beseech you. We exhort you. Please keep going. Keep pursuing Christ. Keep trusting God by faith. Here's what David Chapman said about that word pleasing. He says pleasing does not refer to an attempt to win salvation from God by our actions, but it does indicate that as those saved by grace, our proper response is to live in spirit-empowered sanctification, which is pleasant to the God who has redeemed us. So again, sanctification is an outworking of and a remembering of what God has already done. And we respond by living a life of holiness, resting and trusting in what Christ has done. And You think about what had happened in this group of of Thessalonians. The whole trajectory trajectory of their lives had shifted dramatically. They had shifted from seeking only to please themselves in their former lives to now seeking to live a life that was pleasing to God. There was a new aim. There was a new goal. Look at verse 2. Paul, Timothy, and Silas had served as an example for them. And in verse 1, and then in verse 2, now he leaves them almost marching orders. The Greek word translated instructions as an apostle of Jesus. He says, for you know what instructions, these kind of, it's like a military term, these marching orders that we've left for you, that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
And in verse 3, Paul tells them what the will of God is for them. It's very plain. For, the will, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's that word that we talked about earlier. And this is not a new commandment. This is not something Paul came up with. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you shall be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. Be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. This is also not just something that Paul said. We have the Apostle Peter in his letter, a, a little bit to the right, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Here's what Peter said. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you as holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So you see a consistent theme. I'm the Lord your God. Be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. It's consistent throughout the Scripture. And so the goal of sanctification is to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ as our lives are shaped and molded and by the Holy Spirit, as we said, one of my seminary professors said, we're all like little rocks that have been thrown into the creek and the work of the Holy Spirit knocks our rough edges off over time. So the goal of sanctification, to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, molded by the Holy Spirit as we submit and obey to the law of God. And then as we think about this, and we think about this call to be holy as I, the Lord, am holy, as you examine your life, you examine your growth in the Lord, how do you see yourself being more conformed to the image of Christ? How do you see this sanctification at work in your heart? And we've said before, from time to time, it's good just to pause and think about, how's the Lord changing me and shaping me in some way? I, I used to be this angry, but now I'm not as angry. You know, I... I used to struggle with this, but by God's grace, maybe not so much. I used to be bitter and angry or whatever it is, but now by God's grace, I'm, I'm not what I was once before. Good chance just to kind of take a second and think, how is the Lord changing me and shaping me? And, and how am I being more conformed to the image of Christ by the work of the Spirit? Another question, is the law of God sweeter to you now than it was a year ago? Are you living to please God more? Or are you only living to please yourself? We think about this question constantly. How's the gospel changing you, shaping you, molding you? How is the gospel changing your life in some way? Andrew Young said, Christian living aims to do the revealed will of God, but it does so in order to please, never to earn. Obedience is never a supplement to God's grace, but it is always the fitting response to it. Here's where the good news comes in, okay? Thankfully, the source of progress in the Christian life is not the sweat of our brows and the strength of our own resolve. It is God and His faithfulness, His faithfulness to His covenant promises. I mean, think about it. If your sanctification was solely left up to your own strength, you have already fallen flat on your face. You're already behind the eight ball. What if the sanctification is completely up to you? We're all in trouble, aren't we not? Which is why so many Christians in this area struggle with assurance of faith because you're always asking, have I done enough? Am I holy enough? Have I obeyed enough? Constantly wondering, am I really a Christian? Like, have I done enough to somehow earn his favor? The amazing thing about the gospel-driven view of sanctification is that it revolves around the fact that Christ has already done everything necessary 
And the promise of God is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. He who began this good work, he will bring it to completion. And everything necessary for you to be justified before the Lord, to be declared holy and blameless, Christ has done every bit of it. So we rest in Christ and we trust in Christ. And we obey out of what has already been done. The Christian heart shifts from, oh, I have to do that, to I get to do that because the Lord has been so kind. It moves from a have to to a get to. When we think about the law of God, it becomes the delight of our heart. We say, Lord, if you really are that good and you have done everything necessary for me, I want to obey you. I want to do what is right because I rest and trust in that you know better than I do that you know how life works best. And it is my heart's desire. As the Psalms tell us, it's sweeter than honey your, is your law to me. And we think of how it becomes a delight of our heart, and we ask why. Why? Why? How's that work? We obey not to earn God's love, but as a response to glorify the one who purchased us back from the grave at great cost to himself by taking our place. When we think about the cost that Jesus paid to rescue us, the next few verses in which Paul asked the Thessalonians and by extension us to deny ourselves, the cost seems very small when in comparison to this eternal weight of glory that's set up before us. Because Paul is going to ask the Thessalonians and us to think about our lives and to obey in some very particular ways. Now, the context of this in the ancient Near East is sexual sin was rampant, especially in a big port city like Thessalonica. Misconduct and adultery were commonplace as marriage was really just seen as a legal arrangement between two people with really no moral underpinning whatsoever. Prostitution of all ages, secular and religious, was rampant. Basically, it was a sexual free-for-all and it was front and center in every corner of society, and Paul's converts would have come from this type of background. Now, when you think about what's going on in Thessalonica, and you think about where our culture is currently, it's really not that hard to see how the human heart has changed 0% since the fall. You think about what's going on in this port city of Thessalonica, and you think, that sounds an awful lot like American culture these days. A sexual free-for-all and you, you think about, I'm, now I'm not, I'm not planning to go too deep in the weeds on this, but in verses 4 through 8, Paul calls them to abstain from this type of activity for the glory of God. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. He, in, at the end of verse 3, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul uses the Greek word there translated sexual immorality, this, this word porneia, and it is basically a catch-all phrase to describe any activity outside of God's design, which is one man and one woman in a committed covenantal marriage. Anything outside of that falls under that category. So he says stay away from anything that falls outside of that design. And again, the gospel had impacted every facet of their lives as they submitted to God's law, and they stood out from the world around them in a big way, especially in this area. You can imagine this rampant sexual sin that's there, and all of a sudden there's this group that's been changed by the gospel, and instead of going along with everyone else, they're saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Their lives stood out in an amazing way 
And it was probably really hard. Our culture is currently obsessed with this topic. But Christians have been unmistakably clear on this subject from the very beginning. And the Bible is crystal clear on it as well. And it is a way that Christians have been called to be different from the world for millennia to abstain from this type of activity. And so, again, we ask the question, how are we doing in this area? Are you pursuing holiness in this particular facet of your life? You think about your phone, your laptop, your, the books that you read, the TV that you're watching, the things that your heart and mind kind of dwell upon. How are you pursuing holiness in this particular area of our life, especially as our culture is literally saturated in it? How is the gospel changing you and shaping you? The culture is assaulting you from every angle, and you need to know that there is a war going on for your affections at the heart level. Verse 8, Paul reminds them and us today that the Holy Spirit has been given to help us fight back, and his job is to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, to purity, not to the image of our perverted culture, which is impurity. We have been called to purity, to holiness. God the Father longs to see you resemble his beloved Son in this life. And he's given us everything we need to make progress. But he hasn't just issued a command and then left us to figure it out on our own. And that's the good news. He hasn't just said, hey, go be holy and then let me know how that works out. He's given us everything that we need. Remember what James Grant Jr. said earlier. He said, we have already been changed. We've been called, regenerated, forgiven, and adopted. The biblical ethic is that we are now called to live like that. In other words, we are called to become what we already are in Christ. The good work, the, do, the work has already been accomplished. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what's the call? Calm down. Trust Christ. Rest in Christ. Trust the Holy Spirit's work. The Lord has given us all that we need. This is good news for those who fully trust Christ. If you do not trust Christ as Lord, please heed the warnings and know that you will stand before that holy God that we have already confessed and that you will stand before Him on the day of judgment clinging to your own impure moral record. The call is this. You cannot do it on your own. Flee to Christ. Flee to the one who has done it on your behalf. Flee to him. But you might be thinking, even in the midst of this, Dave, if you only knew my life, I have messed up tremendously in this area of my life, and I continue to mess up. Dave, you don't know what's going on. The call is the same. Flee to Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. Pursue sanctification with the Spirit's help. And help Seek help and accountability from people you trust. Don't let sin keep pushing you up against the ropes and taking body shots. With the Spirit's help, fight back. The thing that we forget oftentimes is just the, the, deadful, the deadly sinfulness of sin. It does not have our best interests at heart. It wants to tear us down and to break us down and to tear us away from Christ. Don't just sit there and let sin take body shots. The Lord has given you all that you need with His Spirit. Fight back with the Lord's grace for the glory of Christ. The good news of the gospel, again, is for Christians that because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, you are now united to Christ by faith and are at this very moment 
declared blameless before a holy God even as you struggle with the effects of sin. We talked about that fancy Latin phrase last week. We're simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and saintly and sinner. Simul justus, simultaneously just and sinful at the same time as we fight with sin. That's what Romans 7 is all about. When we think about this, this should actually lead to assurance at the heart level. Why? Why? When you think, well, I'm not good enough. I know you're not, but Christ was good enough for you. And here is the good news, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news of the gospel, especially as we fight back against sin, is that the sacrifice has already been made. Full atonement has already been secured. And that Christ will hold you fast until the very end because God will complete the good work that he began in you. Yes, he will. That's good news. So we look to Christ and we trust and we rest in Christ that the source of progress in the Christian life is God himself. Not you. It's God himself. And he equips us and walks with us. And we've got the Holy Spirit to help us fight back. We don't have to keep taking body shots. We look to Christ and we rest in Christ. But then you ask, why? This is the really quick second point. I promise, real quick. Okay? So the source of progress in the Christian life is not the sweat of your brow. It is all that Christ has done on your behalf and the equipping of the Holy Spirit. But why? What's the purpose? What's it for? That's our second point, very quickly. The purpose of progress in the Christian life. Our shorter catechism explains in question number one, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Okay, that's Westminster Shorter Catechism. And as the Thessalonians' hearts were changed and shaped by the gospel through this spirit-empowered process of sanctification, it manifested itself in a couple of really powerful ways. Number one, it manifested itself in love for each other. We see that in verse 9. It also spilled over into the watching world around them in verse 10. As this watching world looked and saw, hey, there's something different about them. A simple application here when we think about this call to brotherly love and how others are seeing them is that life in a fallen world is too hard already. We don't need to waste our time and energy fighting over silly things. Satan happily tears churches apart by using internal division over matters of personal preference, and cold wars amongst congregants are his favorite weapon. Be on guard. Let's trust Christ. Let's keep moving forward. You see this call to brotherly love right here. Let's seek to love one another as Christ has loved us first. Let's seek reconciliation because Christ has reconciled us first with the Father. As I tell my camp counselors each and every summer as I go and I train them, I said, the secret to camp life is this. Drink a big old glass of get over yourself and trust Christ. Good news indeed and a good reminder for us as we work for the glory of Christ in the world around us. The marching orders are remarkably simple. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 9, there's this brotherly love that we see. Verse 10, everybody else is seeing this, and we urge you, brothers, to do more and more. And verse 11, 
And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. The marching orders are actually remarkably simple. The Christian life has been described as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Let's just keep being faithful. Let's keep trusting Christ until he returns or he calls us home. Why? Because God has dealt graciously with us and has granted us peace through the blood of the cross of his son. We don't have to earn his love. It's already been given. That's good news. So like Private Ryan, we're now called to live out the rest of our days seeking to honor the one who died to to rescue us by taking our place. God's will for us is sanctification, growth and holiness. Let's pursue that, but let's but also live as those who have already been declared holy because of Christ. Let's pursue love because God loved us first. Don't you see? The call to pursue sanctification, that command, that imperative, is driven by the indicative, a statement of what Christ has already accomplished. The indicative always drives the imperative. These things are inherently true about you because of what Christ has done. And because of what he's done, he says, It is finished! God's wrath has been put away. Now live in light of that. Live as people who have been blood-bought. Pursue holiness. Pursue sanctification with the Spirit's help because of what has already been done. Live with that gratitude in your heart and say, Thank you, Lord, that you've done that. Help me to pursue you. Help me to obey you, even when it's hard. See, the thing when we think about what happened there at Private Ryan is he had to visit some tomb in some cemetery. But, be, but our Savior lives, does He not? And so we don't have to go to some tomb because our Savior lives and He's promised to walk with us even when we mess up, even when we struggle, even when we're not really feeling it that day. The Lord promises to walk with us and to give us all that we need. We don't have to visit some tomb because our Savior lives. That changes absolutely everything. And it gives us hope in our fight with sin. It gives us peace with God. When we mess up and go, ugh, I messed up again, we come with confession on our lips, trusting and resting in Christ to say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done and all that you are. And help me by your Spirit's power to fight back, not for the glory of myself, but for the glory of Christ. Soli Deo Gloria in every aspect of our lives for God's glory and for the glory of Christ, the one who redeemed us. Amen? Let's pursue holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that has been done in our place. The best thing that will ever happen to us already happened 2,000 years ago when your son died in our place. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of all that is good and true. Remind us of the sacrifice that has already been paid for us. Lord, help us to pursue sanctification with the Spirit's help. Knowing, and knowing that because of Christ, our standing before you is secure. And in a moment, as we sing this closing song, we're reminded that when we fear that our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. You will hold us fast because you love us so. You will hold us fast until the very end. You know your sheep, and no one will be able to snatch them out of your hand because you are sovereign. And help us to rest and trust in that. Give us hope in our fight with sin. And help us to, and to rest in whose we are and rest and trust in your love for us. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.